0: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
1: Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do.
0: Go to patreon.com slash Fangirl to
1: learn more. I mean, this has very Atlantis feels to me.
0: I'm Jenny Williamson.
1: And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this
0: is Ancient History Fangirl. For over a thousand years, the ancient Egyptians sent their ships out to trade with a fabulous kingdom. They dragged their ships from the Nile to the coast of the Red Sea, or sent them sailing far down the Nile past Nubia. And those ships returned groaning with luxuries beyond anyone's wildest imaginings. Gold and rare green electrum staves of ebony wood, aromatic resins, perfumes and cosmetics, exotic spices, wild animals such as had never been seen before, and foreign slaves. The place they got all this from was the land of Punt. In addition to being a five-star trading partner, the land of Punt was known to the Egyptians as the land of the gods. They believed the sun rose in its territory, and that they themselves had once emigrated from Punt and got their culture from the Puntites. They referred to it as Ta Neger, or Land of the Gods.
1: But as powerful as it was, as wealthy as it was, as sophisticated as it was, to be the birthplace and cultural inspiration of the great Egyptians, nobody knows where Punt really was. The Egyptians described just about everything about it, except how to get there. On that subject, for 1,100 years, they were conspicuously silent. It's almost as if they didn't want other people to know how to get to visit their friend. Maybe. So was Punt in Africa? Was it along the western coast of Arabia? Was it an island in the far-flung Indian Ocean? Or was it like an Atlantis? Meaning, did it ever exist at all? That's the mystery we've gathered here to explore today. So how do you get to Punt, Jen? For a star on the right and straight on until morning? Oh no, that's Neverland.
0: It's kind of like that, though.
1: <laughs> and I, I definitely got that quote wrong, but something like that.
0: <laughs> so there were two ways to get to Punt, according to the ancient pharaohs and their officers. One way was to go by the Red Sea. This was a common route and an extremely arduous one. Because Egypt was a riverine empire. It was situated along the banks of the Nile River. The Red Sea was to the east of Egypt. It's like this long, narrow sea that, you know, if your sense of geography is bad. It's like this long, narrow sea that runs roughly, uh, I think it's northwest to southeast. Between the northeastern side of Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, it opens up into, um, you know, the wider ocean at the southeastern end. I think it's the Arabian Ocean. The Red Sea was not close to the Nile. It looks close on a map, but actually hundreds of miles of desert lay between them. The way it worked was that the Egyptians would build their ships at Koptos, which was a town at the shore of the Nile where the river veers closest to the Red Sea. From there, they disassembled the boats they had just built, carried the pieces a hundred miles across the desert, and reassembled them on the shores of the Red Sea at a port that today is known as Gawasis. I hope I pronounced that right, but that the Egyptians called Sao. A number of interesting hieroglyphs and steles have been found that document various expeditions to Punt that took off from there.
1: But that's where the records stop and that's the problem. The ancient records describe the process of assembling, disassembling, and then reassembling ships, dragging them through the desert, and the points of departure at Coptus and Sao. The ancient Egyptians documented all this very thoroughly. But after that point in the expedition, the records, all of them, from the reigns of multiple pharaohs for more than a thousand years, go silent. The ships disappear into the Red Sea and return with fabulous wealth, and not a breath about where they went or how they returned. This dragging your baggage through the desert situation wasn't the only way to get to Punt, by the way. Records show that there was another way, traveling south down the Nile, passing through Nubia, the kingdom just to the south of Egypt. After Nubia, the ships also disappeared into the haze. Relations between Egypt and Nubia were not always friendly. According to some scholars, the Egyptians took this route when relations with Nubia were good and the Red Sea route when they were hostile.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting, like this whole disassembling and reassembling boats and then dragging them through the desert makes me think of Cleopatra. Like there was a historical precedent for dragging your ships through the desert for the Egyptians, right?
1: Yeah, no, I was thinking exactly the same thing, Jenny. Like when we read about this and then we included it in her escape plan when Augustus was at the gates, you know, I thought, oh wow, that is such a intense plan, right? To have to drag your boats across the desert. What I didn't realize was historically, this is the precedent, right? This is something that happened all the time because if they weren't able to do that and clearly there was tensions in this area throughout quite a lot of history. Clearly, when there was tensions, this was how they were able to maneuver themselves around and go into different areas. So it's it's fascinating. And I always love being able to see that stuff repeat later on.
0: Yeah, because if you think about it, like this would have been how they would have reached the Red Sea. I mean, they could have more easily reached the Mediterranean, but the Red Sea is kind of like, there's a desert between the Nile and the Red Sea. And they, you know, they did do a lot of trading with partners that they could reach from there. So they had to drag their ships across the desert. This is a thing that they must've done. Like this was part of their, their plan, I guess. I've heard it theorized that at one point, there was a canal built between the Nile and the Red Sea up at the North of the Red Sea, which is quite far from this area it doesn't apply to this whole pun thing because I think it was built a lot more recently in history and it was in a totally different part of Egypt. So, but prior to that, I think, they would have had to do this to reach the Red Sea.
1: Yeah, and that's why canals are so fascinating, right? Because they they a- allow a nation to have access to the sea. And it, it means you can travel faster, and particularly in the ancient world, but even in the modern world. I mean, remember, we had that whole incident with the boat getting caught in the canal just a couple years ago. So much of our economy relies on things being able to move around via the water. This was especially true in ancient times, and it's still very true in today's day and age.
0: Mention of Punt has been found as early as the reign of Khufu from the 2500s BC. And Khufu, if you remember, was the guy who built the Great Pyramid, father of Khafre, who probably built the Sphinx. An inscription has been found depicting one of Khufu's sons with a man who's believed to be an enslaved Puntite. However, the first recorded expedition to the land of Punt came from the old kingdom reign of the pharaoh Sahure a few generations later, around 2465 to 2325 BC. This expedition is recorded on the Palermo Stone, one of seven still surviving fragments of a basalt stelae that documents a list of pharaohs of the Old Kingdom, as well as some notes about
1: their most famous deeds. Sahure was a mercantile pharaoh, like all pharaohs. He did do some smiting of his neighbors, but that wasn't where his heart was.
0: <laughs> yeah, his heart just wasn't in the smiting. No, it was just in the trade. But, you know, every once in a while you gotta smite, right? He's like, God. I'll do some smiting here and there because the job requires it, but it's not my favorite part.
1: If you say so. <laughs> some archaeologists think this stele, showing him smiting local chieftains he conquered, were plagiarized from earlier stelles. Sahure's passion was trade. He was known for his adventurous trading expeditions to places like Lebanon and Syria for cedar wood, foreign slaves, brown bears, and other exotic items. He apparently had a myrrh tree in his garden that he brought back from one of these expeditions, which he was very fond of. The expedition to
0: Punt took place in the 13th year of his reign, his last year. It was the crown jewel in a career of international trade. According to the Stone, the ships of Sahure brought back some of the richest luxury goods available in the ancient world. 80,000 measures of myrrh, a very expensive resin used to make incense that was used in religious rituals. 23,030 staves of ebony, dark wood known for its density, hardness, durability, and beauty when polished to a high sheen, and 6,000 measures of electrum, a naturally occurring alloy of gold and silver that was among the most valued metals in ancient Egypt and in the ancient world, sometimes used to coat the capstones placed at the apex of pyramids. This was a pharaoh's ransom. We're told that the ships of Sahure most likely departed from the port of Sao on the coast of the Red Sea, were told that the ships returned carrying enough riches to buy a kingdom several times over. What we're not told is where Punt was and how they got there.
1: There were other expeditions to Punt in the Old Kingdom. In the mid-2300s BC, the pharaoh Jedkari Isesi sent ships to Punt for incense, and they brought back a dancing dwarf. This dwarf was mentioned over a hundred years later in a letter from the nine-year-old pharaoh Pepi II to a military commander named Harkuf, who was leading a trading caravan to Nubia. In modern-day Sudan, Pepe calls the place Yam. Harkuf had written to Pepe to tell him about another dancing dwarf he was bringing back, and Pepe wrote back, bursting with excitement at getting to see a dancing dwarf, just like the one brought back by Assesi a century earlier from Punt.
0: Here's what he said, quote, You must bring the dwarf alive, sound, and well to rejoice and gladden the heart of the king of upper and lower Egypt. When he comes down with you into the ship, appoint reliable people who shall be beside him on each side of the vessel, and take care lest he should fall into the water. When he sleeps at night, appoint trustworthy people who shall sleep beside him. Inspect him ten times a night, because my majesty desires to see this dwarf more than all the products of Sinai and Punt. If you arrive at the court and the dwarf is with you alive and well, my majesty will make you many excellent honors to be an ornament for the son of your son forever. All the people will say when they hear what my majesty does for you, is there anything like this which was done for the privy counselor Harkoof when he came down from Yam? So, I mean, he's just like, this guy that you're bringing back had better not die
1: or else. I imagine it was a dangerous trip. Well, that's what this is telling you, right? It's an obviously a dangerous trip. And not only is it a dangerous trip, He's very worried about the safety of this dwarf while he's on the boat and while he's with people. So that tells you the person who they're transporting has a lot of value and obviously could be a victim for kidnapping and other things. That's between the lines. Maybe this was just a really hard journey. There were a lot of hardships. Maybe there was a risk of
0: communicable diseases. That Maybe the environment of the ship just wasn't safe. He's concerned that this person might fall into the water inspect him 10 times a night.
1: Maybe let him get some sleep, though. Maybe. Maybe he's worried about what other sailors, people on the boat, might do to this person as well. Maybe there's there's a reason to worry about his safety. Um, we don't know how they would have treated this person.
0: The other question is, would the dwarf try to escape? Because he's saying, make sure that there are people guarding him day and night and sleeping next to him, because the assumption is here that, that this dwarf would have been an enslaved person.
1: Absolutely. Also, it tells us a lot about what that voyage would have looked like. Potentially, it's a very rough voyage. There might be a lot of storms. There might also be pirates and things like that. Like, he's got a lot of worries here for a young child. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, we know a lot about the life of this military commander, Harkov, because we found his tomb. It has a lengthy biography inscribed on the wall. Harkov led many trading expeditions, first for the pharaoh Merenre, and then for Pepe II after him, who allegedly became pharaoh when he was just four years old and ruled for 96 years. I mean, he was 100 when he died. That's the lore around him. Later in his reign, Pepe II sent him to retrieve the body of an Egyptian officer named Enenket, who was killed on the coast by, quote, sand dwellers, while building a reed ship to get to Punt.
0: I'm not sure what this reed ship was, But that's kind of the typical process for going to Punt, according to these inscriptions, was you disassemble your ship, drag it through the desert, and then reassemble your ship. So it kind of makes it sound like he's just kind of on the shore building a rowboat, but he could have been, you know, in charge of an expedition to get to Punt.
1: Yeah. Brief mentions of expeditions to the land of Punt continued into the Middle Kingdom three different times over the centuries. But perhaps the most important expedition happened during the reign of Queen Hatshepsut. So Hatshepsut was the second of
0: roughly 7 to 12 female pharaohs in Egyptian ancient Egyptian history. The number varies depending on how a pharaoh is defined. She ruled from 1479 to 1458 BC, roughly, the dates are fuzzy. She's notable for adopting the title of pharaoh, which was a male title, kind of like king, and for having herself depicted in art and sculpture wearing a false beard, as pharaohs did. She also built a large number of spectacular temples in which she performed the male role in religious rituals. These temples were all about highlighting and legitimizing her rule. Hatshepsut died at roughly the age of 50 from bone cancer. Some archaeologists believe she got the cancer from a skin lotion with benzopyrene, a very carcinogenic ingredient. Eczema apparently ran in the family, according to one theory, and this skin lotion may have been for her eczema. Anyway, she had an incredibly spectacular tomb built for herself that you can still visit today. I know you've seen pictures of this. It's that incredible, just vast tomb with all, like, the huge amount of colonnaded pillars that's, like, right up against a stone cliff. It's incredible. Like, at the bottom of a
1: stone cliff. So on her tomb is documented scenes from her life including extensive, heavily detailed documentation of an expedition to Punt that happened during her reign. The importance of this expedition to the land of Punt, in which Hatshepsut made a point to go herself, was that she was cutting out the middlemen and going straight to the source to get her hands on the valuable items she needed. According to the biography on her temple walls, Egypt was in a good place during Hatshepsut's reign. Its borders were stable. It wasn't at war. It had fertile crops and had recently colonized Nubia. Gold was flowing into its treasury from the south. It held the riches of 2,000 years of history and tradition.
0: But when acquiring other valuable goods, like incense for its temple rituals, myrrh and frankincense, expensive woods and oils, spices and exotic animals and cosmetics, Egypt had a problem. Previous pharaohs had let direct trading relationships lapse to the east and south, and the pharaohs were currently trading with middlemen at a significant markup. According to the inscriptions in her temples, Hatshepsut took the problem to her gods, prayed on it, and received the directive to re-establish old trading relations with nations to the east and south, and reopen trade routes across the eastern desert and the Red Sea.
1: So, Hatshepsut oversaw the building of five ships to sail the Red Sea and facilitate trade with neighbors to the south. One of those neighbors was Punt. Her ships regularly crossed the Red Sea to bring back riches such as aromatic resins, incense, incest. Is this incest?
0: Incest. It actually says incest. <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The only time dyslexia saved me. It's like, that is not the word that's written there. But the way it bounced around in my head, I was like, it must be incense.
0: I think I think spellcheck <laughs> changed it to incest somehow. I must have misspelled incense and it changed it to incest and I did not realize it.
1: I mean, to be fair, when we get to the Ptolemies, that is not out of line.
0: It's not out of line for, you know, older pharaohs either. They married their siblings all the time.
1: <laughs> so let's get back to what her ships brought back. Her ships regularly crossed the Red Sea to bring back riches such as aromatic resins, incense, ivory, gold, animal skins, and rare live animals, eye makeup, cinnamon, fragrant woods, and more. Her expedition to Punt was perhaps the richest and most successful. Unlike other pharaohs, Hatshepsut personally accompanied this expedition. She brought back incense, ebony, shorthorn cattle, and, as the carvings specify, goods that the Puntites had acquired themselves from other trading partners, such as gold, ivory, and animal skins. And she got them for a song. Items the Egyptians brought for trade were rather miscellaneous and included some bracelets and strings of beads, a dagger and an axe, and a wooden chest of uncertain contents.
0: The thing that appears to be happening on the walls of Hatshepsut's tomb is that they are seriously underpaying the Puntites. Like, they're just like, here, have some daggers and axes and a few beads and whatever's in this box. I don't know. And then in exchange for that, they're getting just, like, mountains of gold and
1: incense and incest. What I'm trying to say is I think the things they traded and that, like, were such huge commodities and had such high value to the Egyptians. We don't know that the people of Punt put the same value on them. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that whatever
0: the Egyptians brought to the Puntites was rare in Punt, but not so rare to the Egyptians, and vice versa. So they they were both kind of laughing behind their backs and going, I can't believe those people just took all that stuff that we have a million of. So anyway, Hatshepsut even met the king and queen of Punt, King Parahu and Queen Ati. And she brought back 31 live myrrh trees, some of which were planted outside her tomb. The withered, dried-out stump of one, some 3,500 years old, can still be seen today. The record of Hatshepsut's expedition to Punt is the most complete that we have in history. Frustratingly, it doesn't tell us where Punt was or how to get there, but it does give us some clues.
1: So, there are two main theories when it comes to pinpointing the location of the land of Punt. It was either in Africa or on the Arabian Peninsula. Today, most researchers believe that Punt was in Africa. That's the prevailing theory. And it makes sense. Some ancient inscriptions show that one way to get to Punt was to just sail south along the Nile, which would keep the expedition in Africa. Of course, the other way was to sail south on the Red Sea, presumably until you got to the coast around the Horn of Africa. That would also put you in Punt. The Nile is hundreds of miles from the coast. I think it's somewhere in the Sudan at that point in its flow. So that would mean Punt was enormous, stretching from modern-day Eritrea and Somalia into the Sudan.
0: So much of the evidence for Punt being in Africa comes from Hatshepsut's tomb. The inscriptions and paintings on the tomb tell the story of the expedition from start to finish, although large sections have been eroded away, including the voyage there if that was ever there to begin with. What we still have are scenes in Punt itself, as well as the riches and goods brought back from the trading expedition, and even images of the king and queen of Punt, Parahu and Ati. The inscriptions show that the homes in Punt are round, thatched houses on stilts, which indicates that perhaps this is an area prone to flooding, maybe near a river, perhaps the Nile, which indeed was prone to flooding. The huts appear to be built right up next to a body of water. The animals depicted, giraffes, baboons, leopards, hippopotami, even a secretary bird, are native to the Horn of Africa area.
1: And the secretary bird was a recent discovery. This is a really distinctive bird, tall and stork-like, with a distinctive headdress of spiky feathers. There are two on the wall of Hatshepsut's tomb, but one has its head eroded away, and so archaeologists thought it was just a crane. But a better preserved image was more recently found. Secretary birds are native to areas of Somalia, Sudan, and the Horn of Africa.
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the,
1: must not take yourself too seriously, and, six one since that matters, and, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Inscriptions of Queen Atti and King Parahu also offer a clue. Ask the location of Punt. King Parahu was depicted as a tall, slim man wearing a sort of kilt, not unlike what the Egyptians wore, a dagger in his belt and a long, pointed beard growing from his chin. He doesn't look that different from the depictions of Egyptians, but his wife, Queen Ati, does. Queen Ati is a very curvy lady.
0: It's not just that she's curvy, she's just really, really unusual looking. I've seen some researchers suggest she has elephantiasis. Like, it's really just hard to tell what is going on when you look at this image.
1: Yeah, and it is so different from the other images we see in ancient Egyptian inscriptions. It's worth mentioning because it's all we have. However, I would say that being shorter and curvier, there is nothing wrong with that.
0: She's unusual looking, not because she's curvy, but because it's just really hard to decipher what's happening with Ati. I've seen different interpretations of Ati's image, and there's a lot of racist and fat shaming and problematic discourse and objectification of her, especially from European sources. That's kind of it kind of goes back all the way to the 1800s, you know. Shocker. I know. Shocker. One explanation that I've seen is it has to do with the way that the ancient Egyptians depicted foreigners.
1: I was gonna say this. <laughs> I totally agree with you. Like, I, I think that there is something xenophobic going on here. Um, and remember, all of these inscriptions are from the Egyptian lens. The Egyptians here, just like we've seen in other cultures, particularly cultures that touch upon the Mediterranean, they have their own beauty standards. And anyone who is outside of their culture they would depict differently. So I think you're seeing a bit of xenophobia here with this depiction of Queen Ati. I also think that the reason this is problematic is because our current beauty standards still do the same thing to people.
0: I think it's kind of an
1: othering thing.
0: There's this quote from TourEgypt.net that might shed some light on this. Quote, Egyptians seem to have been just as influenced by beauty, if not more so than we are in our modern world. Indeed, it seems at times that beauty may even have been a concept related to mat, the order that Egyptians saw in their world. For example, foreign lands were considered by the ancient Egyptians to be a part of chaos, the opposite of mat, and foreigners are very often depicted in a form very different than the ancient Egyptians themselves, and in a very different artistic style. Frequently, they may even be represented in a more realistic and much less idealistic style. A classical example, like they're citing her here, is that of the Queen of Punt recorded during the reign of Hatshepsut but prisoners were very often represented in very less than ideal forms. So I kind of wonder, were they making a comment about the otherness or foreignness of the Puntites in depicting Queen Ati like this? But that also raises the question, why only depict her like this and not Parahu as well? He looks like a more standard Egyptian guy, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, he he does. I mean, we'll put this in the show notes so you can... It is difficult to describe this if you can't see it. I really don't know the answer to this as someone who is a larger person, I have a lot of feels around this and a lot of feels around just the idea that we're calling her figure less than ideal to how the Egyptians would have seen themselves. Like, I don't know. I, I, I think that, as Jenny said, it is problematic for a lot of reasons. I think one of the things to remember is what you're seeing here is also a form of propaganda. So it is possible that The queen, Hatshepsut, was trying to make a commentary on the women of the land of Punt in relation to Egyptians, and this isn't a one-for-one comparison, but this is the only thing I can think of when we look at things like the rumors about Thracians being great bed slaves. I really don't know the answer here. I have so many problems with the fact that she's depicted this way because it just, it feels super othering to her, but not to her husband. And like, what is that saying? And also the fact that thousands of years later, we're still reacting like this. What does that say? You know, like... It's kind of a mind fuck. <laughs> it really is. It is. But I do think that it is worth looking at the depictions and thinking for yourself, like, why is it depicted this way? What is the story the Egyptians are trying to tell? And how do you as a person interrogate that? And what do you feel about it? Because your feelings about it are very much influenced by... This beauty standard that we can see coming through to us from Egyptian artwork that has endured.
0: The other thing is like this is a, an Egyptian lens that we're looking at these people through. Like as far as I know, there are not that many inscriptions like depictions of Puntites. Fewer depictions of women than men. And as far as I know, this is the only Puntite women depicted. I, I'm not sure if there are others. So it's just, it means something that she's depicted this way. And it probably means more about something the Egyptians were trying to convey about the Puntites than what they were
1: actually like. It tells us something that this is their queen, but it also tells us nothing because we can't look at any other images to compare and contrast. And this is on Hatshepsut tomb. She has a reason for depicting everyone the way she's depicting them. A lot of that has to do with her own propaganda and legend making, because that's what these tombs were all about. So outside of Hatshepsut's tomb, further evidence suggests that the land of Punt may have been in Africa, around Sudan and the Horn of Africa region. In 2020, a team of researchers from Dartmouth College analyzed the strontium compositions of bones, hair, and teeth, from mummified baboons found in ancient Egyptian tombs dating to the New Kingdom, the 1500s to the 1000s BC, as well as from the later Ptolemaic period, roughly from 404 to 40 BC. What they found was that while the later Ptolemaic specimens had lived most of their lives in Egypt, indicating a captive breeding program, the older New Kingdom specimens came from places such as Ethiopia and Eritrea, according to the researchers, this strongly hints that this region was the fabled land of Punt. So
0: another candidate for the location of Punt is the Arabian Peninsula. This lies to the east of Egypt across the Red Sea. Not as many historians think this is the location of Punt, for a few reasons. One is the names. Punt and Parahu both have a P sound. In ancient southern Arabian language, there was no P. The closest they came was an F. The Egyptians had both sounds, so they wouldn't have had a reason to translate a heard f to a p sound. According to some researchers, if southern Arabia was the location of Punt, it would be pronounced Punt, and King Parahu would be King Farahu.
1: Another is the goods brought back to Egypt. While aromatic resins and woods were known in both the Horn of Africa and Arabia, many of the animals depicted on Hatshepsut's temple walls are only found in Africa. However. Would it be possible that a kingdom in Arabia sourced these animals from somewhere in Africa and then sold them to the Egyptians? Hmm. Hmm. Middlemen, they exist. Hatshepsut's temple walls do mention a proliferation of middlemen. They even mention the Puntites themselves used middlemen for some of their goods.
0: I think what the walls, what the inscriptions say is that the Puntites bought some of the things that they sold to the Egyptians from somewhere else, I guess meaning they themselves were the middleman.
1: So some Egyptian sources say that Punt was to the south, but not all of them do. Even Hatshepsut's inscriptions describe it as the land of the gods, a region far to the east in the direction of the sunrise. That would put Punt in Arabia.
0: Yeah, even Hatshepsut says it was to the east, not to the south.
1: Well, that's what I was thinking. Like, they knew which direction the sun rose.
0: They knew their directions, but it seems like when they're talking about Punt, all of that goes out the window. It's so it's so weird. The weird thing is that the directions are not consistent. Other ancient Egyptian sources say that Punt was located to the east, southeast, north, and south of Egypt. One theory proposed by scholar Dimitri Meeks is that Punt occupied the entire western coast of the Arabian Peninsula. Only a kingdom that stretched all the way from Yemen to the Gulf of Aqaba could exist in all those directions at once. There's other circumstantial evidence. For instance, Meeks questions whether the Egyptians ever used the Nile to travel south, past Nubia, to a Punt located in Africa, because no Egyptian inscriptions were ever found that far south along that route. The ancient Egyptians left lots of inscriptions in stele. When they traveled elsewhere, so why not here?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. So, there are other more fringe theories about where Punt might be. One was that it was located in Sri Lanka. This connection is a lot more tenuous. Sri Lanka was known in the ancient world for its fabulous trade goods, including pearls and precious gems, ivory, aromatic woods and resins, and expensive and rare spices such as cinnamon, clove, pepper, and cardamom. At least one ancient artifact in Egypt, dated to the 5th dynasty, is believed to have been made from Ceylon Ebony, a very valuable type of wood that only came from Sri Lanka. And cinnamon, which was native to Sri Lanka, has been found in Egypt as early as 1500 BC.
0: So it would seem that Egypt had trade contact with Sri Lanka, but whether Sri Lanka was punt is a different story. To be clear, this is considered a far-fetched theory, more far-fetched than either Africa or Arabia as far as I know. But there is a wild Egyptian tall tale that describes Punt as an island. It's the tale of the shipwrecked sailor. This is the oldest surviving fictional narrative from ancient Egypt. We only have it on one single manuscript dating from around 2000 to 1900 BC, so this is a few centuries before Hatshepsut's expedition.
1: The story opens with a sailor returning from an expedition at sea. The expedition didn't go very well, and the details are fuzzy, and he's worried about what the king will say when he has to tell him about what happened. His friend and attendant, another sailor, offers some reassurance and advice on how to behave in front of the king. The advice he gives is, quote, the mouth of a man saves him.
0: I think what that means is you'd better talk a good game in front of the king. I don't know.
1: You know, maybe maybe the less said the better. I don't know. I think probably apologize a lot, talk a good game and get out of there as quick as you can. Come up with a real good explanation. <laughs> and so then this attendant tells a tale of an expedition he was once on, one even more disastrous, more failed than this one. He's like trying to reassure his, I guess, friend and guy who's the boss of him in some way. Anyway. So this is the actual story. In this story, The attendant was on a previous voyage on a ship manned by 150 sailors. When a wind kicked up and raised the waves to eight cubits high, don't know how high that is.
0: How big is a cubit? Perennial mystery.
1: (laughs) The sailor fell off the ship and wound up shipwrecked on an island. Luckily, that island had a lot of resources. Quote, there was nothing that was not there, the attendant said.
0: While making a burnt offering to the gods, presumably he found enough resources to sacrifice something? Well, yeah, of course he
1: did, because there was nothing that was
0: not there. Which means everything was there. That's like a confusing double negative, but maybe it's less confusing in ancient Egyptian.
1: Well, it's really fascinating, because what he essentially has found is like, you know, the metaphorical Garden of Eden, right? He's in this place where everything anyone could possibly need is.
0: Yeah, it kind of implies that. Anyway... While he was making a burnt offering to the gods, the sailor heard thunder and felt the earth shake beneath his feet. When he looked up, he saw a giant serpent coming toward him. Three times the serpent asked why the man was on the island. The man was dumbstruck and could not get an answer out. The serpent took the man to its home and then repeated its question three times. This time, the man answered that he had fallen off a ship and that he was on an expedition for his pharaoh. Luckily, the serpent was friendly. It told the man not to have any fear. The gods had allowed him to live, brought him to the island, and that he would stay there for four months, after which his friends would come back for him and he'd get to go home. Then, the serpent told a story about how he lived through an even worse disaster than the
1: second sailor. Listen, this is like a Russian nesting doll of, like, disaster stories at sea.
0: It, it is, it is. So anyway, so this is, this is what the serpent said. Quote within the quote. Within the quote, I suppose, you think this is bad? I used to live here with 73 of my own kin, plus a daughter. I don't know why she's not counted in the 73, but there you go. A star fell from the sky and set them all on fire and they died. Translations vary on whether the daughter survived.
1: The sailor, probably thankful that the serpent didn't eat him, made elaborate promises, saying he would tell the pharaoh all about the serpent's amazing powers and send back myrrh and incense when he made it home. The serpent only laughed, saying he didn't need any incense. The island was rich in incense already, and after all, he, the serpent, was the lord of Punt. He said anyway that once the sailor left the island, he would never find it again, as it would become water. I mean, this has very Atlantis feelings to me. So when the sailor's friends finally came to rescue him, the serpent sent him away, laden with gifts, all of which were things you get from the land of Punt, ivory, baboons, and other exotic animals, incense, and spices. The king was so impressed that he made this attendant a lord and granted him slaves, because that's what you do, I guess. Quote, and this is why I am the wealthy and successful man that you see before you today.
0: That's not an exact quote, but that's basically the, you know, the spirit of it. That's the end of Second Attendant Man's story. And of course, First Sailor Man is just like, yeah, you're full of shit. Because obviously this guy is not a wealthy lord with lots of enslaved people in a giant palace and stuff. He's obviously not. At the end of the story, the First Sailor basically admonishes the Second for his arrogance because of this tall tale that he just told and tells him to shut up, to shut the hell up. Exactly what he says is, quote, Why give water to a goose at dawn before it's slaughtering in the morning? I think the idea is that the sailor thinks he's going to get slaughtered by the king in the morning. Ancient Egyptian sayings are a bit esoteric, but they probably make more sense in their original language. There's probably something lost in translation here.
1: I mean, what it sounds like here is he's like, you're, he's saying to the attendant, like, Why are you telling me this? You're the one who's taking the fall for it. Have fun! <laughs> Oh,
0: maybe that's it, I mean. (laughs) Right? So what ancient kingdoms could have been Punt? When I started this episode, I thought that the easiest part of locating Punt would be looking at archaeology. I thought it would be relatively easy to find a kingdom or several kingdoms that would have been in the right place at the right time that could have been Punt. I didn't find the obvious contenders I thought I would, but I'm going to share some possibilities here.
1: The ancient Egyptians described Punt as an incredibly wealthy kingdom. You'd imagine it would have been very developed for its time, with incredible monuments of its own. Historians believe that based on what the Egyptians do tell us about the location of Punt, it had to be very large, either extending hundreds of miles from the very tip of the Horn of Africa all the way into the Sudan to the Nile, or extending all the way along the Arabian coast. But we don't have much evidence in the ground— Either in Africa or in Arabia, for the huge, extensive ancient kingdom that's theoretically there. And this comes with the caveat that both areas in Africa and Arabia haven't been exhaustively excavated. Many discoveries, no doubt, have yet to be made. But what's being proposed here are vast kingdoms, ancient, wealthy kingdoms, going all the way back to the 2500s BC. Where's the evidence for that in the archaeology?
0: To be clear, I'm not saying that there weren't people in those places at the right time. I'm not even saying that there weren't complex societies here. Africa, for example, had city-states and kingdoms like the ancient Greeks, hundreds of them all throughout the continent. And like I said, when I started this episode, I thought it would be really easy to find, you know, a kingdom or maybe a few kingdoms that lined up in terms of time and place and that could possibly have been punt. Here were the strongest contenders that I came up with. So one possible contender is, I think it's pronounced Demot. It's spelled D-apostrophe-M-T. This kingdom, located in Eritrea and northern Ethiopia, is a little bit too young to be punt. It lasted from around the 980s to the 400s BC. We don't know a lot about it, as not a lot of archaeological investigation has been done. A large temple complex has been unearthed in Ethiopia that archaeologists believe may have been related to this culture, and it's thought that they were an agricultural society with iron tools, plows, and complex irrigation. This is one of the ones I've occasionally seen suggested as could have been Punt.
1: The next place we're going to talk about is the Kingdom of Axum, and it's from the 1st to the 10th centuries. I'm assuming this is B.C., not A.D.
0: I think it's A.D., actually. Like, this is another—it's it's another young one. It's interesting because of its location.
1: So it's from the 1st to the 10th centuries A.D., So Aksum is an interesting possibility because it spanned both a chunk of Eritrea, Djibouti, and eastern Sudan and the strip of the Arabian Peninsula. There is a theory that a mistranslation of directions in some hieroglyphics says that actually the ancient Egyptians were telling us that Punt was not across the sea but on both sides of the sea. And that would work if we were talking about Aksum.
0: Yeah, Aksum is the only one that is kind of partially in Africa and partially in Arabia, which makes it, like, interesting in terms of, like, where the Egyptians were telling us who it was. It's possible. It is way too young, though, is the only problem.
1: It's way too young, but there would have been people, like, before that. Like, maybe they built their civilization on top of something else that hasn't been on Earth yet. We don't know.
0: Yeah, and that's the possibility, and that's kind of why I did include some societies that there was a compelling reason to include them, but they did seem way young. It's like, maybe there was something... Maybe there was a a people there before, and we just haven't unearthed that evidence yet.
1: So geographically, Axum really works. It was, at one point, one of the great superpowers of the Mediterranean and the Mediterranean-adjacent world. A powerful trading hub and military power. It built elaborate palaces, minted its own coins, developed an independent writing system, and mined gold and iron. The only problem, as Jenny said, is they're kind of too young. Punt allegedly existed from the 2500s to the 1000s BC. Axum didn't really get started until the first century AD. And I will say, like, the thing about Punt that we've realized from what we've been told is they were about trading. They seemed quite peaceful.
0: Yeah, that's another thing about it. Like, Axum might be a little bit too military to be Punt. So another possibility is the Macrobians. These were an ancient tribe in the Horn of Africa that we know about via Herodotus. He described how, when the Persian emperor Cambyses II tried to conquer Macrobia after conquering Egypt, the king of Macrobia challenged him to string an unstrung bow, Odysseus style. If Cambyses could do the deed, he had the king of Macrobia's permission to invade. If not, well, he should just thank his lucky stars that Macrobia wasn't looking to invade Persia because it was not gonna go well for him.
1: What he's trying to say is like, you know, if if you can't string this, this is all of our archers can string this, right? Like they're all this fierce. They're all able to string this. And like, depending on the type of the bow, it might not have been a recurve bow. It might have been just like A regular bow, which would have taken quite a lot of strength to string. There are a lot of myths about how much upper body strength it requires to do that. It is a dick swinging contest.
0: It's an absolute dick swinging contest, correct. Herodotus also described this wild embalming method that the Macrobians had, and I just have to describe it because it's really interesting. First, they extracted all moisture from a corpse— Then they covered it in plaster and painted the plaster in order to look like the deceased in life. So they basically, like, painted it to look like the the person. They paper it and painted it to look like a person. They did! And after that, they placed the plaster-encased body inside a hollow pillar of translucent crystal, which was stood up in the family's home for about a year before being placed about the city. So the city had, like, a lot of these sort of translucent crystal statues of, of dead bodies according to Herodotus.
1: That's super interesting.
0: Herodotus has a lot of really unique details, you know? I, I don't know how true some of this stuff is, but it's just it's just really like, wow, did people actually
1: do that? Well, we don't know. We know some stuff he would have eyewitnessed and saw, so we think, like, yes, that would be true. I also, like, treat Herodotus a little bit the way I treat Pliny, which is like, oh, you excitable dude. People are going to tell you shit, and some of it will be true and some of it won't. So, when that's your father of history, think about history, critically. Anyway, we aren't 100% sure that the Macrobians were the people of Punt. Herodotus was writing in the 500s BC, about 500 years after the Egyptians stopped talking about trading with Punt.
0: It's possible that the um, Macrobians existed 500 years prior to Herodotus writing about them, though. You know, this is just the first time we see them mentioned.
1: Totally. And also we see them mentioned from Herodotus, who is, you know, a Greek source. And it's possible that the Macrobians were just the people of Somalia, people Herodotus described as a fierce warrior tribe of pastoralists and sailors, who were also, quote, the tallest and most handsome among all men which may or may not have also described the Puntites. We don't know. And there is no description about the women. Interesting.
0: They're just the men. The men were tall and handsome. They were hot. (laughs) It's just really important when we discuss ancient cultures that we discuss who the Hotties were. I think that Herodotus' priorities are really in the right place.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm here for his priorities. (laughs) (laughs) So the next group we're going to talk about is the Gash group. And these were a prehistoric culture that lived from roughly 3,000 to 1,800 BC in eastern Sudan. These people lived in round huts. They were known for their distinctive black cups and bowls decorated with an incised comb pattern and other pottery. Egyptian ceramics and faience beads have been found in gash group sites, suggesting that they had trade contact with Egypt.
0: So the Gash group appears to have used a combination of subsistence farming and hunter gathering to keep themselves fed. And according to the archaeology, this wasn't like necessarily a vast kingdom so much as, you know, a culture possibly of tribes of various sizes that all kind of shared the same culture. And, you know, for that reason, like the way that Punt is described by the Egyptians, it's like a kingdom with a king and queen who controlled the whole kingdom theoretically, but maybe not. Like, Who knows if they were just talking to one group of people amongst many? Like, we don't know what the social makeup of Punt was. There are hints that the Gash group may have had a more complex society than is typically depicted. At one site in eastern Sudan, a large town was found with two cemeteries and dwelling places between them. In the center of town, there's evidence for large-scale food production, as well as seals and seal impressions that suggest a more highly organized, possibly bureaucratic culture it's hard to tell what we're seeing here, but possibly there was a more stratified culture among the Gash group than we realised. This is so far my top contender.
1: I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend.
0: Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello everyone, you may recognise me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognise me from anything yet. But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So another possible contender for the land of Punt is the ancient city of Apone. Apon was a city on the Horn of Africa that had extensive trade contacts with the ancient Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans, Persians, and even ancient India, Indonesia, and Malaysia. The city had a port on the Huffan Peninsula in what's now northeastern Somalia today. Apon was a vital trading power in the ancient world. Some evidence of trade contacts between people in this area and cultures, such as the Mycenaean Greeks, go back to the 16th century B.C., While its kingdom didn't stretch all the way into Sudan, it's unclear if it influenced any area outside its city walls. It's clear that it was an important trading hub at one point, known for trading in cinnamon, tortoiseshells, incense, exotic animals, and more.
0: So, I don't know, Jen, does anything seem like it could be Punt here?
1: I don't know. Like, the clues we have are so maddeningly vague, and we only have them in, like, There's so few of them. Like, I can't tell you. And also, they come from an Egyptian lens. And Egypt is only seeing what's being exported from Punt. They're not seeing what the climate inside the land would have looked like or how it really interacted with its neighbors.
0: That's the thing. Punt seems to be really isolated, you know? Like, we don't get a sense of Punt in the wider world.
1: Here's the thing. Punt is sort of being told to us the way, like, 90s, history was taught, which is all in silos and isolation, as opposed to in the greater sort of scope of the world. And that's why it's so frustrating to figure out what's going on here.
0: To me, most of these cultures, and there could be some that people already know about that I just didn't see when I was doing my research, you know, like I tried to be as thorough as I could, but I don't have vast knowledge of this area. Most of these, I think, are too young. The two that stand out to me that could be real contenders are the Gash group, because of their age and because they're pretty widespread. And uh, Opon, because Opon was a... It's the oldest city that seems to be, like, a really powerful trading hub that possibly reached into at least Hatshepsut's time. Like, this could have been the place that, you know, the ancient Egyptians were going. Maybe they controlled more territory than we realize. There's a lot we don't know here. Opon seems like the more, like, more urban one. And the Gash group just seems, like, less urban, but perhaps they had access to all these goods and were also traders.
1: Also, I will say this, the other thing that makes it maddeningly difficult is we don't have any we don't have any of their own cultures telling us this stuff. Everything is coming to us from Herodotus or the Egyptians or just other people and that also makes it difficult.
0: Yeah, I mean and I don't know if there's, you know, ancient accounts, like what ancient accounts and inscriptions that we have from these cultures themselves. And like I said, there's so much that we don't know because it just hasn't been excavated.
1: So there were kingdoms in ancient Arabia as well, lots of them, many with extensive trade contacts throughout the ancient world. So here are a few contenders.
0: Those who actually think that um, the Arabian Peninsula might be the location of Punt think that Punt stretched all the way up and down the western side of the Arabian Peninsula. And there aren't any uh, cultures that I found that fit that description. But I'm going to bring some up just to see if there's anything possible contenders here. So one possibility are the Minaeans. They're from roughly the thousands to the 150s BC. The Minaeans lived in what's now modern-day Yemen on the southern coast of Arabia, dating from the 10th century to around 150 BC, like I said. These were desert dwellers living in a desert called the Sehad. We don't know much about the ancient history of these people. They were first mentioned in writings in the 7th century BC, so significantly after the land of Punt dissolved into time and memory, like the, you know, significantly after the Egyptians kind of kind of stopped mentioning going to the land of Punt. They must have existed prior, though, because these writings specify that the Manans were a kingdom of small city-states, dominated by another group called the Sabaeans. The Manans were known to be traders. They specialized in supplying expensive frankincense and myrrh.
1: Yeah, so that leads us nicely to the (laughs) Sabaeans. They were another South Arabian people who lived in southern Yemen from around 1200 BC to 275 AD. These were a more powerful group in the area that are mentioned in both the Hebrew Bible and the Quran. Some believe that they might have been the original kingdom of Sheba from the Bible. Historians have referred to this as the, quote, oldest and most important of the South Arabian kingdoms. However, some historians doubt they rose to prominence before the 8th century BC.
0: The kingdom of Ausan from the 700s BC to the 100s AD? So, this one was in South Yemen, near the western coast. It was one of the most important kingdoms of southern Arabia in its day, and its capital city was an unusually large city for the area, including temples and a palace. We know that at least one of its kings was also worshipped as a god, and a statue of him has been found dressed in the Greek style, so they had contacts with the Greeks, at least. However, most of the site remains buried by a tell that's been largely unexcavated. We don't know much about the history of this kingdom. Like I said, again, you know, a lot of this stuff has not been excavated thoroughly, so there might be evidence of older communities that these rose out of. What do you think in terms of these, Jen? I mean,
1: it's really tough. Like, the Manaians, they seem like they could work for me, but it is too new. I don't know. It's really difficult because the clues are so sparse about the land of Punt.
0: Yeah, the clues are super sparse and... Nothing in the archaeology that I've seen just
1: quite fits. But here's the thing, Jenny. What about Sri Lanka? Oh, tell me about Sri Lanka. So while there has been human habitation on Sri Lanka for thousands of years, the earliest signs of a complex society that have been found that could have been punt is at Anuradhapura, one of the island's major cities today. There is evidence of a large settlement here, dating to sometime before 900 BC. This area was extremely historically significant. From here arose Sinhala, a hydraulic civilization, one that maintained power by controlling access to water. They built a complex network of huge dams and reservoirs, as well as pyramid-like stupas.
0: It's an important Buddhist pilgrimage site and the location of the Jayashree Maha Bodhi a sacred fig tree that's the oldest surviving planted tree in the world. It dates to around 288 BC. Buddhists believe that it to have been a cutting of the tree under which the Buddha attained enlightenment. There's a vast network of ancient monasteries and temples that date from around the time this tree was planted, which again makes it too new, but there could have been, you know, older stuff that it arose from. Most of the really significant stuff about this civilization that I found is much younger than Punt, but there is one intriguing connection here. You remember the tale of the shipwrecked sailor with the talking snake? Buddhist scriptural accounts record that the Buddha visited Sri Lanka three times to see the Naga kings, snakes that can transform at will into humans. I think these documents date from around the 200s to the 400s AD. I was trying to figure it out. That seems to be the dates. So... There is a mythological or perhaps religious connection to human snakes or talking snake kings with Sri Lanka, specifically.
1: So generally, what we see in the archaeology so far is that most of these sites are too young, although they may be descended from older peoples who did trade with Egypt, and we just haven't discovered those peoples yet. However, just because none of these kingdoms or peoples can be definitively identified as Punt doesn't mean the Egyptians weren't trading with people in these areas.
0: Maybe none of their trading partners actually was Punt. Maybe none of them actually controlled vast swaths of land to the south or east of Egypt. But what if Egypt traded with them anyway, all up and down the Arabian coast, foraying into the south to trade with the people of Apon, the Gash Group, and other cultures south of them in Africa that were there at the time? What if they just did all that, brought back fabulous goods, and called it Punt for propaganda?
1: I mean, I support that. Knowing what I know about ancient cultures, that seems legit to me.
0: The obvious question has to be asked. Did Punt exist at all? Or was it like this mysterious island appearing in a mythical fever dream only to disappear into the water as soon as the sailor leaves as if it had never been?
1: This is not the most accepted theory, by the way. Most historians and archaeologists believe that there was a land of Punt, and that it was probably in the Horn of Africa area. A minority think that it could have been in Arabia, or maybe even Sri Lanka, although that is less likely. But another theory states that Punt never existed at all. And to be clear, this doesn't mean that the Egyptians didn't trade with people in Africa and in Arabia. It doesn't mean that those baboons didn't come from Ethiopia. It just means that the place that the Egyptians got those baboons from wasn't a kingdom called Punt.
0: So there are a few things that are weird about the land of Punt. The first thing is that even though we have lots of records of the Egyptians traveling there, traveling back, and what they bought, we have no record of exactly where they went when they went there. We have detailed records of the Egyptians either dragging their boats in pieces across the desert to get to the Red Sea, or sailing as far south as Nubia on the Nile, but at a certain point, the expeditions set off on the sea or pass through Nubia and then simply vanish. They come back with tall tales to tell and exotic goods of the most expensive variety. Many exchanged for very basic goods like daggers and strings of beads. The Egyptians always seem to be getting an outrageous deal on these luxury goods. But we have no idea where they were or who were these people they traded with. Even Hatshepsut's tomb, which provides very detailed accounts of everything else about the journey, neglects to tell us about this. It's kind of spooky.
1: Yeah, it's so vague and odd that you're just like, what am I to understand here. So, second, why didn't the Egyptians ever attack Punt? Why didn't Punt ever attack the Egyptians for that matter? Think about it. Punt was allegedly extremely wealthy. If you're Egypt and you have at that time an incredibly advanced army and endless resources of your own, surely at some point it enters your mind that, yeah, buying stuff from the Puntites is great and all. But you could also just sweep in there and take it. You could be one of those pharaohs, the smiting kind.
0: Some of them like to smite, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we know that because they left records of their smitings. Oh, they did. Or how about this? You could sweep in there, conquer their place, and then have them send you all that great stuff that they seem to have just lying around as a tribute every year. I mean, that sounds like a pretty great deal. Exactly. And, you know, surely that idea would have entered some pharaoh's head, right? At some point in the 1,100-year 1, history of trade with Punt, someone would have had this idea. So why is there no war or anything?
0: Yeah. At some points in its history, Egypt was the superpower of its time.
1: According to Egypt.
0: <laughs> According to Egypt. I mean, look. It, but it, it was also a very wealthy kingdom that did have military capability. It was constantly conquering its neighbors, including Nubia to the south. It beat up on Nubia a lot. I think Nubia gave as good as it got, though. I hope so. Hundreds of stelae and inscriptions tell of pharaohs smiting neighboring tribes, sometimes literally, holding enemy leaders by the hair and whacking them with clubs. I'm just gonna shout out to Narmer, the first Egyptian pharaoh. Like, he's the one with that really iconic image of him, like, holding up a club and, like, whacking a guy.
1: That's awful.
0: This is their propaganda. And when they weren't smiting, the Egyptians were being smitten.
1: I don't know. Smitten sounds like they're just in love with everyone. Smoten, smoted, smoten, Smaugin?
0: <laughs> can we can we page smaug?
1: Is there a smaug in the building?
0: <laughs> smout, smout, smouten. <laughs> they're having <Everything's> smouten. Smout. <laughs> anyway, so what I'm trying to say is that the Egyptians were being smouten by other. <laughs> By other ancient societies, including the Hyksos, the Romans, the Libyans, the Nubians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Macedonian Greeks, good lord, the list goes on. Why weren't the Puntites among them? Why? Why? Whether you put them in Africa or Arabia, they were closer to Egypt than a lot of these societies, and if they had bottomless pockets, then they probably had bottomless armies or funds to pay mercenaries. Why did it never enter the Puntites' minds to just take over Egypt and get them to pay tribute?
1: That would have entered my mind many times. Then there's the third question we have here. Why does no other society mention the Puntites? Because the land of Punt does not show up in any other contemporaneous culture's writings. It's not like no other cultures were in contact with people in the Horn of Africa. The people of the Horn of Africa were trading with the Greeks, Romans, Persians, and everyone else as far afield as Malaysia and Indonesia and India. Why didn't the Puntites trade with these people? Why didn't they get in on this action, Jenny? Why?
0: Or maybe they did, but like other ancient cultures didn't write about them. That's the thing. And they would have.
1: Yeah. Maybe they were like the best kept secret. They're like, I know a guy who knows a guy. (laughs) like, But I'm not going to tell you their name.
0: (laughs) They just didn't want anybody to know about it, which is why they didn't tell you how to get there. I mean, that's a theory.
1: So it seems like the only people they talked to or traded with was the Egyptians. It's not like they didn't have access to a coastline. All theories about Punt's location place it either along the Horn of Africa or the Arabian coast. That is a lot of opportunity for international trade contacts.
0: So why does Punt appear in no other cultural record? Did they only trade with the Egyptians without a thought about conquering them or being conquered in return? Why did the Egyptians have perfect relations with only this one trading partner over the years? One possibility is that the Egyptians were just sailing to the Horn of Africa or perhaps somewhere in the Arabian Peninsula, buying all these luxury goods either from middlemen or directly from local tribes, sailing back, and telling everyone that they got these things from Punt. The Egyptians do mention that buying from middlemen was a widespread practice by Hatshepsut's time.
1: What if Hatshepsut really did want to make trade contacts with people deep in the Sudan, who produced all the fabulous things that the pharaohs were used to buying at an ancient city like Apon, on the Horn of Africa, so that she could sidestep the middlemen and get those things for cheap? What if she did all that with a culture like the Gash group and just called it Punt? Why would she or any other pharaoh do that? Because Punt wasn't just Punt to the ancient Egyptians. They also referred to it as Tanajir, or the land of the gods and claimed it as the place their culture came from. It was also, in some writings, the place where the sun rose from, in the east. They saw it as a mythical ancestral homestead.
0: If a pharaoh claimed to his or her people to have traveled there, that would be very impressive. Kind of like going to the moon, and sea travel was dangerous enough that it would have seemed this intrepid. Or sort of like Julius Caesar going to Britain, right?
1: Yeah! Don't say his name three times, though. I'm not interested in talking to him tonight i mean him and i are in a big fight oh i'm curious what are you in a fight about can't talk to you about it right now is it about how
0: great my ass looks in these jeans
1: it is not about you it's about tiny home nation and it's stupid
0: so julius caesar it's like julius caesar going to britain a leader or ruler going to a mythical land i mean britain isn't mythical but the romans thought it was mythical at a certain point Going to this mythical land and being welcomed with open arms by its leaders, and then hoodwinking those leaders into selling her vast sums of luxury goods in exchange for a few beads and daggers and stuff. I mean, that would make the pharaoh look very good to their subjects. And the pharaohs were all about that propaganda.
1: Yeah, of course they were. This is how they kept power, right?
0: It's, it's about the mythology of the pharaoh, like the mythology they built around themselves.
1: The pharaohs, Long before Julius Caesar knew the importance of their own social media propaganda strategy. So towards the end of the New Kingdom, around 1069 BC, ancient Egyptian pharaohs stopped recording trips to Punt. It seems to pass into a realm of mythology more completely. One love song has the lyric, and I'm assuming this is an ancient love song.
0: It is, but I had a hard time dating it. Like, the date wasn't recorded, but it's kind of held up as like a newer... Example of the way the land of Punt was referred to after a certain point in time.
1: Yeah. So, quote, when I hold my love close and her arms steal around me, I'm like a man translated to Punt or someone out in the reed flats when the world suddenly bursts into flower. It's so romantic. I guess. I'm not quite sure what's going on here or what happened in Punt. Now I feel like was Punt a sex cult? (laughs) I mean, I'm just like he's out in the reed
0: flats and the flowers are blooming and the birds are singing and it's just joy and his heart is bursting with love and it's like he's been transported to Punt. It's like he's been transported to heaven or something, you know?
1: Now I feel like it was Punt Las Vegas where you went to just have a really good time. Then that makes me go back to that story about the sailor who lands on the island of Punt where he meets the snake and everything he could possibly want is there. So it's like, is that what came down through the ages to this point when this love song is written as being Punt? A place where everything you could possibly want is there for you.
0: Scarabray. Has anyone thought that maybe Punt, in fact, is Scarabray? (laughs) I have.
1: I posited just now. Oh, God, why would you go to the north of Scotland?
0: (laughs) That's a a bit of a hike for the
1: Egyptians, and they do seem to be... Going about it the long way. If they're going around Africa and dragging their boats through the Dead Sea to get to Scotland. They're a little directionally
0: challenged. So, maybe Punt never existed at all. Maybe it was Atlantis, the moon, or a mythical land of talking serpents and sun gods. Or maybe it really was in Eritrea, or Somalia, or Djibouti, or somewhere along the western Arabian coast, or in the wilds of Sudan, or even in far-flung Sri Lanka. And the archaeological evidence is still there, waiting for us to find it.
1: So that's it for this week. Join us next week for whatever we're covering next. We're not quite sure. I'm probably writing the episode.
0: Jen has no idea. That's what she's telling you.
1: I do know what I'm doing, but I can't pronounce it right now.
0: The struggle is real. Go blacky tepe.
1: (laughs) In the meantime, find us on social at Ancient Fan on Twitter for as long as Twitter exists and we stay there. And at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram, and now TikTok. I guess we're on TikTok. I, I have put nothing on TikTok. We have not done anything yet, but I think 2023 is going to be our year.
0: So you can also join our Patreon if you would like to support the podcast. You can find that at slash ancient history fangirl. And we have some Patreon members to thank. Uh, apologies in advance to anyone whose name we mispronounce. We're prone to
1: that, as you may have noticed. Thank you to Jonathan Haga, Anne Boucher, MJ Sharp, and Alexandrite Ring. Thank you all so much. You're the reason that we're able to do this podcast still. Four years. Thank you
0: so much, and we will see you next week.